key lecture, Hospitals and Madness. Peregrine Horden is Professor of Medieval History at Royal Holloway, University of London. He is particularly interested in the social history of early medieval medicine in Europe and Byzantium and has, like no one else, shaped the history of hospitals. His respondents are Dr. Matthew Broom, who is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the Warwick Medical School, University of Warwick. He takes a special interest in psychotic illnesses and philosophy of psychiatry. The second respondent is Dr. Afzal Jawid, a consultant psychiatrist and honorary associate clinical professor at Warwick Medical School, University of Warwick. The key lecture and responses will be followed by a short paper by Pauline Kutche about her current research. Pauline is a PhD student at the University of Warwick and the French Institute for the Middle East. Her research focuses on melancholy in medieval Islamic medicine and the relationship between medicine and philosophy. This last part also includes a discussion and a final roundup. Now, we're going to be um, very flat-footed from here on, I'm afraid. There's no, um, don't do God, don't do divine inspiration, <laughs> don't do... Uh, great, they certainly don't do poetry. <laughs> uh, we, we have some nice, straightforward social history, which is my, uh, the level at which, at which I operate. I'm not um, an Islamicist, uh, as will be, become uh, apparent. I uh, move around uh, between Byzantium and Europe and a little bit of Islamic history with help from my friends, such as uh, Daniel and, uh, and Emily. And uh, I was thinking as we progressed through the morning what my qualifications were. And I'm, I'm beginning to think that it's that I've had all, almost all the symptoms that have been mentioned. <laughs> until, we got, um, until we got to a FIFA's business about having a bath and not feeling wet. Um, I was there with almost everyone. <laughs> so this is uh, a case of the, uh, I don't know, the poacher turned gamekeeper or think of your own. An analogy. I would preface these comments first by saying how important it is. It seemed to me when it was broached, and how important it seems to me now that we've uh, experienced it. This collocation of the of the ancient and the modern, um, which for historians, medical historians of of my uh, sort and and, and period, uh, goes completely against the grain. Where. Certainly in, in this country, um, medical historians are not, uh, do not have medical qualifications, and we try to pretend, usually with a great deal of success, that we know nothing about modern medicine, because we don't want it to contaminate our thinking. We want to be entirely uh, enculturated within the Middle Ages or, or wherever it is. And it's time to change that trend, it seems, to get back in touch with, uh, with, with reality. Of a sort. Um, then, talking of which, I don't know whether any of you noticed at, at our end of the table. I had a glass of um, uh, um, a jug of, of cold water poured down my back by a hapless, <laughs> hapless waitress. And as the um, as the patch spread out <laughs> and the dampness uh, penetrated the, the layers of clothing, I, I started thinking, well, if this were blood, <laughs> and I'd been stabbed in the back, that's the thing from being stabbed in the front by my 
academic um, rivals. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I'd been stabbed in the back, who would have been able to help me? Do the clinicians, the clinicians, the psychiatrists have medical qualifications? Will they have been any good? The medical well, they do, and I think, I think, I think the, the rumour is that just the fact we had medical qualifications mean that we would have been completely nonplussed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the medical historians would have been useless, all this knowledge of what, um, of um, uh, the doctors who protected um, Saladin from, from assassination. Well, as Bill's cartoon, is there a philosopher in that? Yes, exactly. So, um, <laughs> I, I was very relieved that it was Andy Walsh. It made me realise that in some ways we are all equal in our uh, uh, relevance to certainly uh, uh, wounding. So we should stick to this area, which does fruitfully bring together the ancient and the modern, because as I'm learning, there are many problems of conceptualisation and definition with the modern, as we find in the in the ancient sources. Now, to the matter in hand, the focus of this could be on, on Saladin's court and the hospitals that he founded. These have been referred to, and people here know more about them than I do. Or I'm going to venture the generalisation that we don't actually know uh, about Saladin's, the, as well the interior of Saladin's hospitals in Cairo, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Acre and Rambler, I think perhaps are the, are the others on the on the list. We know perhaps that one was refounded, that one was made out of a palace and so on. I don't know that we know whether there were any um, insane people in them. I'd be very grateful for enlightenment on that or, or correction. So instead of a tightly focused paper on Saladin's hospitals, uh, I'm going to take a, a wider, uh, longer perspective and uh, do some comparisons and look at the briefly of the type of explanation and treatment which might be given in hospitals and related settings in a little bit of Western Europe and a little bit of Byzantium and a little bit of uh, earlier Islam, earlier than the period we've been uh, speaking of uh, up to now. The big question, which I'll throw out now so that it will give us something for discussion, I hope, which is, is very open. Uh, what does it mean to put the mad, the mentally ill, in, 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 on whatever de definition you like? What, what does it mean to put these in a designated space to enclose them? Not necessarily to incarcerate them, but to enclose them within a space. Or more broadly, how does space interact with etiology and the types of, of treatment that are dispensed? Uh, is there any fit between where you are being healed and the type of healing you may, um, you may hope for, or the type of treatment uh, more broadly. As they present themselves to me, looking comparatively at earlier medieval material, the man, of course, we see only from a great distance. We don't see individuals. Uh, and I think we see a mixture of etiologies, of overlapping, as they I ought now to call them, discourses, in which lifestyle may be a matter of regimen, of uh, medicine, but may also be a matter of sinfulness uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which may corrupt the humours, and that might lead directly to, um, uh, as we would call it, mental illness, though of course it's not seen as primarily mental, though the causation can also run in the other direction. And that humoral corruption, in its turn, um, can uh, make one vulnerable to uh, the intrusion of a demon or of the, of, the, of the diabolical. So 
obviously the, the mixture changes over time and place, and I sh I'm going to generalise heroically, I'm not going to get uh, too bogged down in any one particular place or period. But that there is a mixture I see as being quite general, and I think that complicates any answer to my question of what difference place uh, might make. And I'm simultaneously encouraged and depressed by hearing that modern clinicians find difficulty in mapping their nosological categories onto the experience of patients as they as they present themselves and their, uh, and their symptoms. It seems to me we have in the material about what we call mental illness uh, a mixture of bizarre categories, uh, ones we can, such as um, lycanthropy, which is not the same thing as being a werewolf. It is hanging around in, in graveyards and uh, uh, looking pale and wan and, uh, and, and so on. Um, and is a category within the medical literature within a, a very long life until it's, as well, picked up in the period of the witch craze and turns into werewolfism. Uh, and others, such as melancholy, obviously, which have uh, a, history of the, a history that we feel uh, more comfortable with. How do these categories actually relate to real-life symptoms? Are these all from the texts? as we get them, are they really descriptions of folk illnesses which themselves help determine the cultural shaping of the way uh, patients presented their, their symptoms? Or are the texts remote from clinical experience as is a distinct possibility? Uh, the second question that I shall throw out and not attempt to answer is a subsidiary one, but still big. Uh, do doctors in the Middle Ages, wherever you like, do doctors actually treat many mentally ill patients? Or do they just write about it? Is there more talk than action? Uh, and if they're not treating, then who is? Is anybody treating? We shouldn't rush to judgment and assume that, that therefore whatever religious sources of healing are available come into play. Uh, it may be it's all in the, in the family. But I don't think it's very much to do with, with doctors outside, let's say, court circles where the smallest bout of constipation may be a medical, uh, a medical crisis. Of course, physicians and livelihoods and futures uh, depend on it. <coughs> now, uh, a bit more to, to hospitals. And here I'm keeping it as general uh, uh, as I can because we have a, a mixed audience of specialists, some of whom know this or better than I do, and others to whom it may be less familiar. <coughs> the, what is the modern image of a hospital? First of all, as it's biomedical, and I'm dealing with institutions which are not necessarily medicalized, though some of them are. In terms of the insane, you might think of Victorian asylums. Or if you go further back, you might think of Foucault and the supposed great confinement of the insane that happened in the early modern period. Neither of these stereotypes really is anything like a full history. Asylumdom, as it's called, is only part of the picture, even in Victorian times. The family, private, small institutions are perhaps just as important. Foucault's great confinement of the insane simply didn't happen. Just didn't. Sorry. Um, <laughs> perhaps to some extent it happened with general hospitals in France, but not elsewhere, and probably not even in, in France. 
Uh, what is our pre-modern image going back uh, earlier than this of the hospital? As far as Europe uh, is concerned and Byzantium, the hospital is charitable, it's sometimes medical, and the insane <coughs> are generally excluded, along with pregnant women, along with lepers who uh, will go to their own uh, leper hospitals, although that is a, a different story, much in need of, of discussion. So that on the conventional view, if you as well work your way back through the asylum, through Foucault's great confinement that didn't happen back into the Middle Ages, on the conventional view you find nothing. That is, you do not find the insane, the insane in hospitals of any kind until you get to perhaps Barcelona in the 1370s or uh, parts of Valencia in the early 1400s. And this is taken to be uh, an import from Islamic lands. Uh, previously, and this I got uh, from um, the most recent book on hospitals in Spain, at least written in English, previously it was the family, we are told. Now, on the conventional view, staying with that just for the moment, uh, we next go to Islamic lands, where suddenly everything brightens. Europe is a blank. Europe is hopeless in, in this regard until the 1370s. In uh, Islamic lands from the 10th century onwards, we do find the insane in large numbers. And, well, not in aggregate, but I mean, we find hospitals which ha are either exclusively or partly devoted to the insane. Uh, and this is where we could start to move to the handbag, which I'm going to touch on very lightly and simply to give you material for, for further reflection. Uh, Islam kicks up, uh, you skip to, to number 10. And those of you who are Islamicists will, will know, as others may well do, that Islamic hospitals, the, the, the Islamic hospital that is the Dinaristan, which is a new Persian word originally meaning house for the sick, and comes by about the 11th century, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but roughly then to mean insane asylum or something like that. It's just, so much are the insane present in these places that the, the term changes its meaning. And they're looking. <laughs> Never mind, carry on. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Got it wrong already. Okay. Um, uh, which would be the four salad, if I'm right, which I'm, which I'm not. But I'm curious about that. I, 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 I think it's... I mean, chronology is right, yeah. Okay. It becomes associated with... I mean, before salad. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. All right. Yes, So... Uh, well, anyway, um, it, it changes its meaning. It, come, it comes to signify that the insane are present in the hospital, uh, either partly or, or overwhelmingly. And if you want a, a modern-sounding type of hospital in the major cities from the 10th century onwards, but only, I think, the major cities where there are very powerful centres of patronage, uh, pious families with tremendous means viziers and, uh, and so on, then you will find hospitals which are medicalized, which have picked up the medicine of, as we see here, um, from Rufus of Ephesus and Galen 
still more, and, and other names, but mostly, mostly Galen, and to a considerable extent, uh, though we find it now hard to trace, Rufus. And the doctors present in them are of the highest rank and the highest salary, and they may move from the hospital to the court and back again, and they see hospital experience as a source of medical training in a way that you will not find in Europe, probably not until the 16th century, and possibly not even then, because what is usually said about Giovanni de Monte is apparently wrong, so you may have to wait. Uh, this is, this is unexampled before, and it's unexampled after in, in Europe for a very long time. In 15th century Florence, then <coughs> the most highly esteemed civic physicians will also do their turn in the hospital and will be paid a substantial retainer. Uh, but you have to wait at least until the 15th century, and you have to wait longer for the idea that by looking at hospital patients, as well, all in a row, you could learn something useful, whether they are um, bodily sick or... Uh, physically sick. Uh, these are pious foundations, but they are not, uh, but the space of the hospital, dare I say, is secular. Uh, as a simplifying contrast, uh, the focus of a European hospital in its developed form in the later Middle Ages is the, is the altar. The patients, in some cases, can literally sit up in bed and look towards the altar, where they will be able to see the elevated host. And that is the central therapeutic act. Though there may be nurses who are offering quite good medicine and dietary support and so on. Uh, at the centre of the Islamic hospital, well, come and generalise, is the courtyard and there might be a nice fountain in it. And that is, that is different, though there may be a mosque as well round the corner. The patients are various. Some, as you see, here may be um, scribes or bureaucrats, number 12. Some may, be, uh, may well be poor. There's, there, there's a range of them. How are they treated? They're treated along Galenic lines, if one puts it simply. These hospitals are medicalized in the sense of very expensive physicians practice in them because these are Galenic institutions, the piety of their founders is um, a secondary to the translation movement, the appropriation of, of Greek science, the translation of Galen. At least that is an explanation that is accepted by people I respect in this field and is plausible, though it doesn't sound complete to me. It's, it's the best we can do. Why do we suddenly get in the 10th century, uh, these highly medicalized, highly Galenic hospitals, because starting in the late uh, 9th century, you have the translations of, of Galenic works, uh, sponsors of the same courts, wherein are to be found the people who found uh, the hospitals. And that's as, perhaps as closely as we can tie it into intellectual history. And they become, some of them, Possibly Saladins, uh, we, it doesn't sound as if we know. They become, some of them, places for the treatment, or at least the care of the insane. What is this care? Well, it can be chaining them up. I don't think we find the, you probably correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, um, we find the ex 
exhibition of the, of the insane as objects of derision and so on. As I have to confess, we find in, in Spain, even in the 1400s, as soon as they've got insane asylums, well, there are royal entries, and for, for at least one royal entry in the 1430s, something like that, um, the insane are brought out of the hospital, along with the orphans, who are also there, and they stand on a, on a platform, and they're dressed up, they have ochre on their faces, and they're given sticks to wave as the prince passes by, and they, have, they, are put, um, they are dressed in mitres as if they're fake bishops. So it seems to where on the, as well the slippery slope that leads to the exhibition of the insane in, in 18th century Bedlam. Whereas in Europe, in, away from Europe, in Islam, the land of Islam, the insane may be chained up, they're occasionally beaten, but if they're lucky, they will also get music, and they will have the, as were, environmental therapy of the fountain, the pleasant surroundings, and so on. And if they're really lucky, and they are Ottoman patients rather than medieval patients, they will have a hospital orchestra, well, of, of sorts in, in some places, to, to play to them. Um, I, one of my interests has been music therapy, and I first encountered it by reading Michael Dolls' book. Of course, I knew nothing about contemporary music therapy. Um, and medieval music therapy is seen at its most regular and possibly its most effective in Islamic hospitals. So there is the, the nicer end of it, which, uh, again, you have to wait for in Europe until the very end of the 18th century and into the, into the 19th. So in these very few places... There is the treatment of the insane, the hospitalisation of the insane, the treatment in a variety of forms, many of them by our modern standards, benign. And this is uh, literally psychiatry, the, the medicine, the doctoring of the soul, um, governed by a philosophy, which is ultimately Aristotelian, I suppose. How often outside the, the hospitals, or even within it, do the doctors actually take on particular mental cases and treat uh, people around this table, such as Christina, know a great deal about Raz's case histories. And I checked with her before we started, in case I got that wrong as well. Um, and uh, I'm right to recall that in his how many hundred overall? Over a, well over a thousand case histories. Uh, no, no, the Jali bar nearly 900. Yeah. And then he has more in the Howie and. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's. In uh, what should you say, 1,000, 1,200? A thousand of his case histories, some of them written down by his students. This is the great position of the 10th century, director of two hospitals. <coughs> there are very few cases, indeed, of anybody who is remotely bonkers. Uh, there's, what, what, there's the woman who... If you, did you tell me? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I've forgotten um, the details. Um, there's a woman that feels those like mad when, mad when she's going to have a period, and then another woman with a wounds of patient. Suffocation uh, of the wound. Which develops uh, first with... Um, uh, menstrual problems. Yeah, and then something going up to the neck. And they are like, uh, epileptic feet sometimes. In other words, the, the panoply that we read about in the theoretical works in the Galenic tradition of mania and phrenitis and melancholia and so on is not much represented. Now, I'm deliberately pushing this line. I mean, fair to say, yeah, the doctor didn't actually treat the insane very much and see whether I'm, I'm wrong. You can come back at me on that. 
Now, up to that, we've had something like a conventional narrative, and I've been basing it on the material on page three, which I think supports my basic point. You'll see my debt here to Michael Bowles, but also to, to Peter Pormann, who has done exemplary work on, on this, and has brought into the discussion our Castery, whose, whose handbook uh, was available, in fact, similarly, but uh, is very difficult to read, and nobody perhaps had really planned through it to look for these, um, these references. But I also want to bring into the picture the evidence of the case histories, which is the nearest we can get to the front line, apart from these descriptions, and don't actually suggest that doctors were <coughs> involved with the insane in, in, any, in any detail, although they may have visited them and passed by and offered words of encouragement. The two, um, the two points I'm making can be, can be reconciled, if, if, if I'm, I'm correct. Now, what else um, in about five minutes can be said about the Middle Ages. In the articles which I've been immodest enough to put on the back, at least some of them that I put on the back, um, I've built on work by Michael Golds and others and suggested that there are alternative ways of looking at this, that Byzantine monasteries and shrines could in some <coughs> ways be home to the, to the possessed. We're talking about the chronic uh, chronic possessed and chronically um, insane. Let's just use those big, big words and not worry about refinements. And that they, those two categories blend very often, uh, as, as they do today. Uh, a few years ago, I saw on television what was billed as a live exorcism. Uh, this was on ITV or Channel 4 in the days before everything was whatever it is, celebrity brain surgery or something like that, <laughs> um, when they had some moderately serious programs. And it was billed as a live exorcism, and they assembled a panel of psychiatrists and anthropologists and philosophers and so on, a bit like this gathering. And the, um, the man who had the problem came on and said, well, I, uh, uh, the problem... What was at issue was that he had been driving along and suddenly he felt his foot being pushed to the floor on the accelerator. And for this he was seeking exorcism. That, so that was, the, that was the demon, and that's brought it home to me, that demonic possession is an idiom that we can still deploy in a variety of, um, uh, of circumstances. And the uh, exorcism was a quiet laying on the hands, after which he said he felt better. And then we had the adverts. Um, and of course, the anthropologists have been wheeled on to discuss this highly complex cultural phenomenon. We're completely non-classified. We didn't know what to say. There is a tradition. Uh, the hospital in Western Eurasia, the Middle East, begins in Byzantium in the fourth century, not with the insane, not with any regular place for the insane, such as you find in the land of Islam, but hospitals and monasteries could, in a variety of ways, include possessed and insane people. Uh, and this can connect with the Islamic history. Number five, the bottom of the first page of this, is a well-known letter actually brought into the discussion years ago by Michael Dolls. Uh, and we are in, in Syria, and he's referring to a Zenodokei on a hospital, or which he translates as Bimaristan, royal city, and uh, we pray that our Lord may give it healing to the sick and to those who are bodily or spiritually sick. And uh, I did 
at one stage correspond with Sebastian Brock about the exact meaning of bodily or spiritually sick. He didn't have anything terribly specific to say, as I recall. I was trying to find the, uh, the letter that's got buried in the file uh, somewhere. But he couldn't rule out that this was, this was mental illness, and it does actually mean that. Please don't ask me to uh, repeat the Syriac. Uh, I've put above it two, three, and four some examples of the ways in which mental illness and what is billed as demonic possession can be treated, accommodated, maybe at a low level, uh, in a space which is like a hospital or around a shrine, in the sick, the possessed, the lying there, or can be an actual hospital, or in which, uh, as in number four, the hospital serves as an image of the way the saint behaves. Uh, so in number two, demons go into a hospital and as well take over the patients. In other words, any hospital with a row of sick people can potentially become the abode of demons uh, at, at one end of the spectrum. It, at the shrine of Cosmos and Damien, there is a woman who has an illness from her cranium, which sounds naturalistic, but then she looks after women who have fallen under the domination of the enemy. You know who he is. Uh, is that uh, non-naturalistic? Are the two mixed together? I think they are there. Um, in number four is a man who thinks he has a testicular problem, but is actually an agitated by an evil spirit. It's what a mistake anybody could make. And <laughs> the way the saint looks after people is imaged as a physician making his rounds in a, in a hospital. And I've uh, touched on number five. Uh, number six is a composite, which shows you how a particular church in Constantinople more or less gets a reputation as a place where you can deposit your mad or possessed um, servants or family members, where they take money for looking after them. Um, and where there is a, an area within which there is competition among saints. Again, the shrine is presented as hospital-like. I'm not claiming any more than that, other than that here is a, an image of a medicalized hospital which governs a hospital-like space. And again, it's ambiguous in some of these cases, possibly in most of them, whether the afflicted people are seen as possessed or as mentally ill in a naturalistic sense. And the same could be said while I'm at it of 7, 8, and 9, which I won't take time to discuss, which are Western equivalents, where, for instance, in number 8, a man who is chronically ill, mad, seems to have lost his senses, stays at a shrine for four months and, as well, medicates himself uh, with diet, but then is relieved by the assistance of a blessed confessor, that is, St. Martin. So there's no, uh, there, is, there is religious healing, but also, also diet, for the relief of what is presented, anyway, as, as mental illness, without any um, hint of uh, possession that's involved. And Finally, on the, the sheet um, is a text which has not been much discussed, uh, and I'm happy to say.
send anybody an article which does discuss to greater length than you possibly want, um, which is uh, set in Rome in the late 6th century and shows us, uh, again, a madman who is not seen as possessed or in any way inspired by a demon, but is, but is in some sort of hospital. We don't know much about it. Uh, we don't know where it was. It may not have existed. The point is not, is the story true? It was the story plausible at the time. And it was plausible to the audience of the Pope in late 6th century Rome that a madman should be in some sort of hospital and might be healed by a visiting charismatic. Uh, there is this priest, uh, Amantius, whom the Pope has heard about, so he's brought in to try him out, and he's given this tough nut to crack, as it were, uh, of the, the man who's disturbing all the other quieter patients. So again, at where we shouldn't find it, in a European setting, and surprisingly early on, not the late Middle Ages, but right at the beginning of the Middle Ages, we find an image of possibly the mentally and the physically sick side by side, um, in at least one hospital. So there is at least material there for a different narrative, which accords Islam a special place in, as we're presenting, the extreme, uh, and which looks to us very modern, uh, perhaps apart from the, the chains, uh, but which is on a spectrum uh, that includes Byzantium and Western Europe in the earlier Middle Ages, and that we don't have to wait for the idea of the hospital to be diffused around Islam and then eventually somehow to get back to, to Spain in the form of the, the mental hospital um, right at the end. And from then, uh, it's a tale which I haven't time to tell, but it's, it doesn't, as I said, involve Foucault's great confinement. It does involve some really quite benign private asylums in the, in the 18th century, as well as some... Uh, very, uh, how should we say, unenlightened uh, therapy in places where we might have expected something uh, better. I mentioned 15th century Florence in the great hospital in Florence, which is still a hospital, Santa Maria Nuova. Uh, there was one cell for the insane patients where they clearly were under guard. And there was no medical treatment, though the best doctors were, were perambulating the wards of the physically sick. So it doesn't always uh, march and set, but there is, to change metaphors, at least a thread there which runs through the European Middle Ages in parallel to the uh, Islamic history. Now, where does this get us? I think if you look over these and similar texts, you see, as I said at the start, a mixture of etiologies, a mixture of idioms, and that space doesn't actually determine it. It is not, for instance, that at the shrine we find only the possessed, and in the hospital we find only the, the mentally ill, though, well, the mentally ill in the Islamic hospital are likely to be as were treated naturalistically. Uh, but that is an exception or the extreme part of the spectrum. Space in that sense, to answer my first big question, doesn't actually determine etiology and, and treatment. Uh, if we align the hospital space, the shrine space, the church space, and so on, uh, and anything else you may may care to throw in. Nor, if we compare 
West, Western Europe and Islam and Byzantium, though I don't really think I have the evidence there. I propose, do we find physicians regularly treating the insane outside the hospital? And I come back to the question of, uh, of where they are. Uh, they are not all trooping off to shrines to receive miraculous healing. They are not all being anointed by, by the priest. Um, I suspect they are out in the community, as they were after decarceration in the 1960s, or in the, in the family, for what that was, that was worth. Uh, Royal Holloway, I'll close by um, telling you if you didn't know, is an institution founded by Thomas Holloway, who made and lost several fortunes from patent remedies, which have been analysed and have been found to be mildly laxative. Takes us back to uh, a subject we began with this morning. <laughs> and with these fortunes, that he, with the accumulated fortune from these patent pills and potions, he founded two institutions. One, um, both of them catering for clientele who otherwise he thought were neglected. One, the education of women, and two, an insane asylum for the middle classes. Because the, the poor in his time, went to the workhouse and its asylums. And the rich, with houses of any size, could as well lock auntie in the attic and solve the problem that way, do a, do a Mrs. Rochester. But the middle classes were rather stunned. <laughs> now, before that blessed invention, the rise of the middle classes, uh, what happened? Was it the family rather than a physician? I'm inclined to think that it, uh, uh, that it was. Uh, and... Such people could have been treated by doctors with the equivalent of Holloway's pills and patients, with, uh, with diet, with the occasional bleeding, in an entirely naturalistic way. There are many, uh, as well, naturalistic discourses in the Middle Ages about mental illness. There is the medical one, there is the legal one, which has no chance with, um, I think, wherever we look, big generalisation, correct me if I'm wrong, with, uh, with, with demons as the, the sole cause, nor was everybody thought to be particularly sinful. So we can find such people in hospitals, but what they're doing outside the hospital is, uh, is rather more of an open question, I think. So on that, I'm sorry, having overrun, stop. Thank you. Um, I think I'll just hand over to our first respondent, Matthew Shrew. Uh, yeah. uh, thanks, Dr. Daniel Lemony and, and Bill for inviting me. Um, so I heard that talk the same time as you did. So forgive me. I'm a bit, <laughs> it's a bit um, um, uh, ad, ad lib. But I did have a bit of reading um, Perrigan's excellent paper on the late lunatic, late anti-origins of lunatic asylum, um, which Daniel sent me. Um, so I've got some comments maybe that focus more on, on Perrigan's presentation now. Maybe some other comments related to the paper, if that's okay. Um, I guess what might be helpful, given Peregrine's first question, is, is what we do with hospitals now, perhaps, when they fail. And I'm willing to be my colleagues to have different opinions, but certainly if I speak from my own experience. Um, so in addition to my academic role, I, I work in um, the Coventry Early Psychosis Service, so I'm the consultant psychiatrist for all people in Coventry who develop a new psychotic illness. Frankly, I'm within a certain age range, 14 to 35, so young people with the first episode of schizophrenia or, or bipolar. And I guess the tension that... I've been aware of in, in, in mental health care and mental health um, practice is between this push towards, say, the community, the family being involved, and the huge role of risk management. So I guess my simple answer to the, the question is that hospitals are more about risk management than about therapy or 
this. And certainly, in my experience, and maybe ourselves, we can do. But certainly, when I see a patient, in terms of I admit the patient or not, is yes, is pretty much huge risk. And that risk sometimes is contextualised by um, other factors to their mental illness, such as do they use drugs or alcohol? Do they live by themselves? Do they have a caring family? Do they have a, a medical illness? So, for example, chronic medical illnesses, we know increased risk of, of suicide. And, um, um, and, and such things as this, are they of male gender? So males tend to be better, not only at committing acts of violence, but also at completing suicide. Um, so these sort of little demographic facts that run through, I think, pretty much all psychiatrists' heads when they make judgments about admission or not admission. So I guess certainly, for me, as somebody who's worked in psychiatry in the last 10, 12 years, the hospital has been a place where it's about managing harm to others and harm to self. Um, and I guess the converse of that, to get, this is to speak about the NHS in England, to get an admission for therapeutic reasons or for diagnostic reasons can be quite challenging. To make, to make, when, when you have somebody um, who you are genuinely bemused about, and you can't make a judgment on, say, a series of one-off interviews in a clinic, then sometimes you would like to have it on the ward, to have the benefits of your nursing colleagues' perspectives, to have the benefits of other members of the team to see them. Sometimes you're, you're denied that um, depth assessment, I guess, perhaps the way, the way things are currently constructed. So that's just a point of, of I guess, sociology or anthropology of psychiatry as, as it stands. So, 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 so a difference, I guess that's one thing that I was intrigued about with your presentation, was whether there was that, you mentioned, I think your examples were therapy and etiology, so whether there was this third factor of, of, of risk or societal disorder or violence, whatever you want to encapsulate, is, is, is there in the text that, you, that you've studied. I guess given the change, whether there is that feeling that at least in hospital there is some need for restraint and whether that's because of disruption is in the case of um, um, uh, um, an I think with the chap was disturbing other, other yes. patients yeah. or whether it's sort of a, a coincidental fact of them being mentally ill as far as unfortunately in, in, as I say in UK psychiatry risk is, is the, the dominant reason for using the word um, so that's the one point I sort of wanted to, wanted to clarify and I guess as part of that um, um, so as as, as you mentioned, there was the sort of the, the closure of the, um, of the asylums in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s that happened supposedly successfully in Italy and then generalised the UK. Um, and I guess the emphasis now is that we, we do try and have as much care with the family as, as possible. And something Abs and I were discussing earlier on when we had a chat. It, so we have now teams in the UK called crisis resolution home treatment teams. So the idea is you have teams of nurses and doctors who go to a patient's home and try to, to nurse a medic, medical at home. Um, and that can be worked very well, because it obviously maybe um, stops the patient being traumatised by admission, um, allows them to be cared for in a, in a more pleasant environment. Um, but conversely, it's a big ask for the family. So I guess that's something, again, I sometimes feel troubled by. We're asking family members to do, take on professional roles, which is make sure your, your, your partner doesn't, doesn't leave the house, they're very risky whether we should be asking that of a non-mental um, health nurse, for example. I think there are these, these, these issues that, that are inspired by pure ethical motives that also have a, not necessarily a very clear ethical outcome sometimes. So, so I guess that's how psychiatry is, 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 is today. Um, the other point you mentioned was, um, uh, oh yeah, do doctors of, of the middle ages um, actually treat mentally ill patients? Um, 
And it's, I have to, just two quick things to say, and again, I'd be interested if, if Catherine can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. So one of our colleagues at, at Warwick, Hilary Marland, who's a historian of 19th century medicine, from her having a discussion with me how 19th century case reports are probably fictitious. And again, you th it looks like it should be true. It's I think your question was close to the close to the data or close to the clinical reality. Yeah, but certainly in the 19th century, where Hillary works, yeah. she said I think there's, there's good historical evidence. There's sort of either fictions or at least um, marked um, ideal types or amalgamations of, of cases. Um, so I guess there's one element. So so is 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 the literature of case history even reliable? Taking to one taking to one side, I'm not sure that feels to your, to your point. Is, is there a um, Fabrication was generated purely as a teaching tool or as a reputational tool or whatever else. Um, the other thing I was going to say, say on that slide was just a, a, so one of the things I got involved with in Warwick last year was a, was a bizarrely a course on, on Faust that was taught as an interdisciplinary module across the university. One of my things was teach about Renaissance um, medicine and magic. And I guess I was struck by one of the characters I came across, um, uh, Richard Napier, who's a, who's a sort of Elizabethan. Um, Doctor and priest, and um, Napier reminded me a bit of, of your example, of Gregory. Yeah. In the sense, he was a so so in in Perry's paper, Gregory seems to flip between spiritual naturalist yeah. or Galenic explanations. Yeah. Is, is that fair? Yeah. But a kind of breezy insouciance really. So yes. He's quite happy about it. Yes. Which, which I which I liked. Yeah. <laughs> about him. And and he gets to Napier. So Napier's this um, this Margus, this Elizabethan astrologer and physician, who mixes whatever he's got to hand. He mixes the humoral treatments with astrology, um, and and interestingly, you know, in terms of um, uh, he keep, kept a record of over two thousand patients he saw in thirty seven years, all of which were various mental illnesses, and he would use diagnoses such as mopish, mad, lunatic, and, and me melancholic, um, and used natural and supernatural causes, um, but would always cast a horoscope, link back to temperament and stars, but also look at their physical health, social relationships and use, as I say, things like um, astrology to guide the timing of medicine. So the distinction between treatments wasn't clear-cut. So although he would work maybe in a natural way with his purging, etc., he would time the purging when the stars were right. Yeah. So he just, um, and um, so he sort of worked with this sort of equanimity that I saw slightly in, 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 um, in Gregory. And then I guess I want to bring up the sort of current um, time slightly. So psychiatrists and a bit something Bill's worked on as well, psychiatrists or mental health professionals as a group tend not to have a unified concept of mental illness or disorder. Um, I guess we all tend to think of um, exemplars in our mind when we think of what a mental illness is or what a disorder is. And perhaps without, when we answer a question, use that example to generalise. If you ask psychiatrists to think specifically um, about various disorders, and when we did this amongst some of my colleagues, I mean, after they may have been in one of the buses, I was just supposed to study, we studied a lot of the, the trainees at the Maudsley in South London um, back in the five or six years ago about their views of mental illness, and you saw a difference of beliefs depending on the diagnosis quite markedly, with people having uh, very biologically reductive views about certain things like, like um, uh, uh, schizophrenia, but different views um, more in keeping with a sort of social constructionist or, or nihilist view of personality disorder. So really, there's not a unitary idea of what mental illness is, there's not a unitary idea of etiology, not a unitary idea of, of therapy um, in psychiatry, even, as I say, um, five years ago, in perhaps one of the most sophisticated psychiatric establishments in, in the country, is that, is that fair? So um, certainly the, the issue of psychiatry where these trainees were, it's one of the you know, best research places as well as one of the best clinical places. So 
even the very typical setting, there was a, a, a heterogeneity. So whether that just reflects the reality of our subject, perhaps, is what I try and think, rather than lapsing into, into um, pessimism, is that psychiatry is perhaps one of those subjects where we have to rely on multiple paradigms, much as Gregory <coughs> Napier and current psychiatrists do, and, and certain philosophers of science have called psychiatry the, the archetypal multi-paradigm science. We have to use what we can, steal what we can. So I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you for an excellent response. Um, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for this very interesting uh, paper. It certainly uh, generated a lot of interest. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful to Matthew because uh, he has really said many things which I was going to say. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I think, I think I'm, I'm really grateful to you. But I've got just a couple of comments and uh, I'll, I'll try to answer some of the questions which you are raising or which you are just trying to ask and uh, would actually like that this should really generate more discussion among the group. First of all, when it comes to the hospitalization or admitting someone, I think if you just uh, look at uh, what sort of psychiatric patients we are dealing with, what are the types of illnesses, Rather than looking at what were the types of the patients <coughs> our physician colleagues were encountered in 8th, 9th, or 10th century, I mean, if you look at now, what psychiatrists are supposed to deal with? I usually say that uh, we psychiatrists deal with three types of patients, bad, mad, and sad. <laughs> <laughs> so that really makes us, makes a case that if we are dealing with these three types of patients, we are trying to build our services. We are trying to build the treatment options and the treatment facilities for these types of patients. Now we have to really look at that whether these three types of patients, bad, sad, and mad, were prevalent at that particular time. And what the physicians were supposed to look after or to take the control of these types of patients or people who are having these difficult problems. This is one sort of very important aspect that will probably then determine that whether there was a need or a need was felt that these people should be put into a place, whether you call it asylum, whether you call it a house, whether you call it a hospital. The second bit, which is my psychiatrist colleague will hopefully endorse me, that some of the illnesses, psychiatric illnesses, are self-limiting illnesses. These are the illnesses that you look at someone, he is or she is very disturbed, but even if you don't give any treatment, these patients do get some sort of improvement over the passage of time. Now that also determines the actual necessity of the treatment at any particular time. And as Matthew was, is mentioned, has just mentioned, at the moment, our practice is risk management. And when we look at some of these illnesses, even if we don't treat them, they will get better, but we have to intervene looking at the risk at that particular time. Now, coming back to the types of the illnesses, I think probably that was the time, especially looking at uh, the Islamic perspective, most of these issues were considered in the domain of the religious leader rather than the physicians. 
And probably that may be one of the reasons that why we may not be able to find a lot of mention, a lot of uh, sort of literature saying that look, physicians were very actively involved in treating the mental illnesses. My own uh, presumption is that as mental illnesses or mental health difficulties at that particular time were more handled by the priests, by the religious people, so probably it would be much better if we really try to look at that what were the facilities available at that end. Now I can give you one example. I mean, looking at the uh, Indian subcontinent history. I mean, one of the very interesting observations uh, in the history of medicine in that part of the world, especially looking at the treatment of uh, mentally retarded or mentally handicapped people, we are now calling them people with learning disability. Actually, the treatment of the mentally handicapped at that time, and that is, I'm talking about roughly, roughly about when Islam came to that particular part of the world, the shrines, the religious places, were the places where mentally handicapped and mentally retarded were sent, where they were kept. So that again shows some of the prevailing cultural norms at that time, that if we consider learning disability, mental handicap, mental retardation, a component of the mental illness in that sense, so that was the place, and actually even up till now, the best places where these mentally retarded are kept in, Indio, in, in, in uh, Indian subcontinent are most of the shrines, are most of the religious places where these facilities are available. Of course, I mean, these facilities are not very sophisticated, but people are finding some sort of relief and some sort of uh, access to these places. And then again, if, if we look at, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure uh, you as a uh, medical historian knows better, the, the concept of this custodial care to the mentally ill, that actually again changed the whole concept. I, mean, I, I still remember that uh, the old mental hospitals in Indian subcontinent, when they were built by the Britishers, those were built just next to the district jails, because those were the custodial units mm -hmm. Therapeutic intervention or therapeutic priorities were considered as secondary. And uh, in all mental hospitals in India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, you always found that these hospitals were built next to the district jails. So whether the treatment at that particular time was just being offered out of sort of service or out of the what was available at that time. So I think looking at all these areas, probably we will have to see that what were the concepts of the mental illnesses at that time, what were the available services and options at that time dealing with the mental illness and the mental illnesses and the mental health problems, and what was the easiest option in terms of the uh, availability of the service and the availability of the support.